The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, we've got a big show coming up here today. We're going to start off with Evan Wash, the Executive Vice President of Basketball Strategy and Analytics for the NBA. We actually had him on at halftime of the NBA cast talking about how the play-in tournament is shaping up what the NBA did in terms of research before they implemented it, what effect it's had on competitiveness so far this season. So got a nice 10-minute or so interview with Evan here. Then we get into our locker room chat as well. Apologies for the audio quality there. We had to do it with our Bluetooth headphones on our usual microphones because the locker room desktop client was having some technical issues so hopefully that audio quality isn't going to be too bad but we figured we at least give it to you and if you don't like it well they'll we'll have other podcasts coming up but let's start here with evan wash the executive vice president of basketball strategy and analytics for the nba thanks for having me hey this is the place to be uh, broadcasting a, an awesome game and so we wanted to have you on to talk a, a little bit about the play and obviously most relevant perhaps to these grizzlies who were in the inaugural playing game a year ago and so I wanted to talk to you. Obviously, uh, our listeners, uh, our viewers know what the play-in is at this time. Seven plays eight, nine plays ten. Winner gets one spot. The, win- the loser of seven, eight versus the winner of nine, ten gets the second spot, just so, so we know what we're talking about here. But I want to talk to you a little bit about how the NBA came to the decision to implement uh, this new play-in game. What sort of research did you do to determine whether this would be a good idea for uh, the league and its players? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And, and uh, I'd say, you know, take a step back. I I've been with the NBA just about 10 years, and this is actually an idea that precedes even even my time with the league. So um, the first concept of playing I saw was actually back from 2009, and it's evolved over time, but but this, the core tenet of it has always been to improve the regular season competition. Um, we have a long regular season, roughly half the league makes the playoffs, but there's not always that much incentive for a team to try to move up in the standings, especially late in the year, as, as matchups come more into focus and things. So uh, what we've tried to do with the play-in is is create that competitive incentive for teams to always want to move up in the standings. And so when we looked at different formats, we did a bunch of research. We did fan research, uh, surveying to understand how different formats would be understood by fans, be followed by fans. Uh, we worked very closely with our competition committee, which is comprised of general managers, coaches, players, referees, and, and team owners. Uh, and of course, worked with our board of governors as well, our players association, to think about the different ways that this could be implemented to, to accomplish the goals. We also looked at what the competitive impact would 
be. Uh, so I think a lot of people right now are focused on, you know, what appears to be a penalty essentially for, for finishing seventh or eighth relative to the way the traditional system is. Um, but as you said, we've structured it in a way to, to still maximize the opportunity for those teams and still create that incentive to finish in that spot. And so uh, if, if you sort of play the math out, the seventh seed, uh, the seventh best record is going to have two chances and not just two chances, two home chances to win one game to earn a playoff spot, which uh, given that by definition, that's a team that outperformed the eight seed and the winner of the nine, 10 seed in terms of record, that's a team that could have upwards of 80 or 90% chance of still making the playoffs. And so we can bring many more teams into contention. In fact, we're bringing an average of four additional teams into playoff contention every year without unduly impacting the seven and eight seed in terms of their regular season accomplishments. So we're pretty excited about what it can do for the overall competitive landscape. So obviously it was something that the NBA that you guys have been thinking about for a long time. We're too early to fully evaluate the implementation, but preliminarily, how do you think it's played out so far? Is there anything that is going especially well or defying expectations so far? Yeah, I think uh, obviously early returns, right? So we, we did our first edition of the playing game last year as part of the bubble, which was a unique situation uh, and expanded it this year to a, a larger format that we had been tossing around for a number of years, as I said. Uh, I think one thing we're seeing that's clearly working uh, is that the level of competition throughout the standings is, is, is significantly greater this year. We have uh, at the moment 20 or 21 or 22 teams even in contention uh, for for spots in the playoffs, which is more than we've ever had at this point in the season. That, that's the nature of increasing the, the playoff field or the, the opportunity of the playoff field. Um, and we're seeing the fan response as well. We're seeing uh, ratings increase. So the, our, our national television ratings in April were 25% higher than they were in March as fans sort of became more aware of this format. Uh, we track a, a, a pulse survey where we can see fan acceptance and understanding of that survey. Obviously, there's there's been some high-profile discussion, I'll say maybe even criticism of the format, but that just brings more conversation conversation and excitement. And I think it's, you know, no surprise that, that that criticism is coming from those who have felt that they're going to maybe be disadvantaged by this format. And and that's true that a, a seven or eight seed may see some disadvantage here relative to the old system, uh, but again, in, in the larger spirit. So we think that is all working uh, in terms of what you'd expect to see with the regular season competitiveness. But as you said, that's only half the equation. The other half here is the actual games themselves. And I, I think we, we can't lose the fact that exactly two weeks from now or two weeks in a day from now, we're going to kick off the first ever playing tournament and we're going to get six games over the course of four days with either playoff spots elimination or both on the line and in a typical year, we only get three or four game sevens throughout the playoffs. We've had years with as few as one. So that winner go home feel to get six of those over the course of four nights, I think is really exciting. So that'll that'll really provide the other half of the equation in terms of how we evaluate the success or, or lack thereof. Yeah, and you're seeing some of that, the, the Bulls making the trade for Nikola Vucevic. You know, maybe that doesn't happen if they don't have a, that carrot of potentially getting into the play in, for example. So this obviously was a 72 game season. It's a a little bit different in myriad ways from what a normal NBA season would look like. So what would it be? What does the NBA envision this looking like going forward? Number one, do you hope to continue it in future years? And if so, during a normal 82-game season, would the format change at all? I think the, the thinking is we'll, we'll have to see. And and obviously the, our Board of Governors and our Players Association approved the tournament for this year on a, on a one-year trial basis. You know, I should add that, that this was also a, a very unique year. One of the things we've heard in terms of the challenges of the play in this year is that uh, not just the, the slightly compressed schedule, but the protocols that, that teams and players have had to live under this year, the restrictiveness, the, the daily testing has, has been an incredible challenge and stress for our, our players and teams, and we understand that. And so there's a sense that if a team 
team goes through this challenging season and puts themselves in position for what would have been a, a playoff spot, that, that that's certainly a you know a, a tough pill to then have to go into the playing tournament. But we also felt that this was a really unique year to try this because we knew there would likely be some inequities in the schedule um, as a result of, of COVID disruptions, whether that's teams that had to play more back-to-backs, four and fives, teams that uh, had to play through, uh, you know, missing players or stretches where they were impacted by the health and safety protocols. And so we, we kind of put it in this year as a cushion for those potential imbalances and inequities. And so then that begs the question, well, if it works in, in this kind of season, you know, what role does it play in a, in a traditional season where you're more relying on the competitive dynamics and uh, and high quality, you know, engaging games that, that I mentioned earlier. And so what we'll do after this season is, is collect all the data we have available, which will include some of the quantitative things like the viewership for these games and at the end of the season, the competitiveness of the second half of the season, as well as the qualitative uh, side of this. What what were team reactions? What were player reactions, fans, media? Uh, and, and really just try to put together the picture of what this could look like going forward. Um, and if there's general consensus that it's worked and is, is worth continuing, then of, then of course we'll look to do that. And maybe there's format tweaks that we would make as we go forward. But, you know, we certainly, at least based on the early returns, this would be something that, that we would look to explore going forward. Interesting. You brought up missing players in, in some of the context of this unusual season. And I, I'm interested, just something, you know, just Nate and I watching the whole league, as, as many have this whole year and many of our League Pass fans, it seems sometimes anecdotally like there, there are larger players being out, but there are a lot of different factors going on. Do you, Have you seen any data in terms of player absences, whether this compressed schedule or anything else is leading to leading to a different dynamic this year than other years? Yeah, so a couple of things here. I mean, the, the headline is that injuries are, are down relative to last season, and you sort of define injuries as the injury that led to a player missing a game that that number slightly down from last year and right in line with where we've been over the last five years um, the flip side of that of course is players are missing many games because of the health and safety protocols either because of positive tests contact tracing exposures etc and so yeah we've had a lot of games and a lot of high profile games with with players missing but that wasn't of course always due to the injuries um, that's just the nature of, of playing through the pandemic in the way we have and trying to keep players and coaches referees team staff as healthy as possible the other side of this is there's been a lot of focus on on the schedule uh, and the density and compression there. And uh, there's a bit of perception versus reality there, too. The, the schedule was not significantly more dense than it's been in the past. Teams were playing 3.6 games per week this year, which is slightly up from the last few years where they played 3.42 games a week. But that's less than one additional game a month. So we're really talking about something that's pretty close to on par with where we've been the last several years. And in fact, if you go back to uh, prior to the 2017 CBA, we were right back at that 3.6 games per week number. So the schedule itself is not out of line with history. Um, but as I talked about, the, the protocols that go around it uh, certainly made this one of our more or perhaps most stressful seasons. So we're very sympathetic to what you know our players and teams have had to go through this year. Yeah, and obviously certain teams missed some games in the first half of the season. And so then they had to make those up uh, as well. So in a typical season, I would imagine that you all looked at this. If you want to stay as, you know, whatever metric you want to use for determining, you know, how many teams are kind of in contention towards the end, still have something to play for with the play in as opposed to just the traditional one through eight seating. Uh, how much is this going to increase uh, the number of teams that uh, still have something to fight for going down the end of the year? Yeah. So the way we typically look at contention is, right, you can run simulations to understand a team's odds. And obviously, 
there's lots of different you know third party sites that'll do that. We we try to just look at more black and white approaches, and we did this for the bubble last year. At any at any point in the season, you can look at what's the largest comeback a team has ever had from that many games behind a playoff spot with that many games remaining. So for example, uh, with 15 games remaining, the largest comeback we've had was four games behind the eight seed. And so when we looked at the 15 game mark and said how many teams are now within four games of what was then the now the 10th seed, we had 24 teams in that category, which was the highest we've ever had. 22 was the previous high. And you, you know that obviously that number dwindles because as you get closer to the finish line, it becomes harder to come back from three or four games behind. Um, so no, no magic here when you add four teams to the field of teams that are still alive as the regular season ends guess what? You're going to get four additional teams on average in playoff contention. So um, obviously that could that could tweak up or down in any given year based on the, the distribution of the standings. But adding four teams to contention is is a big deal because uh, of the 14 teams that are going to miss the playoffs, if you know, if if half of them, um, you know, the four that are actually in the play in, um, but ultimately miss the playoffs and then the few others who are in contention for the play in, uh, not only have you increased those competitive incentives within the playoff field, right, moving up in the standings, You've also done it for the teams that traditionally may have seen themselves as, as out of it or, you know, as you said, sellers at the deadline or, or throwing in the towel earlier in the year. So we, we could see, you know, 22 to 24 teams uh, in contention right to the wire in, in a lot of years if we were to continue with this format. Yeah, I think that really matters uh, a lot, too, because then you have fewer games that involve two teams that are out of it. I, I think that's that's something that a, a lot of people uh, uh, would like to try to avoid. And so uh, keeping more teams in it really helps with that. Is there anything that's been unexpected about this uh, process so far for you? Obviously, we haven't actually done the tournament yet, but uh, you know anything that you didn't necessarily uh, anticipate going into this process? Yeah, not a whole lot. I think that that would be significant, but uh, certainly one thing we've we've heard from teams, and you know, you've, you've seen this in the public commentary as well, is that. Uh, because of the challenges of the year, because of teams recovering from from COVID disruptions, and because of that that slightly increased density, um, the pressure that this puts on teams every night, uh, you know, to put on the best possible you know product they can and, and really compete as if each game is a playoff game uh, was is tough this year. And I think we didn't necessarily anticipate that balance that um, teams have a little bit more need for for rest and recovery uh, in this season. And so you know, teams have felt on edge and felt that they needed to to really treat every game like a playoff game which is the spirit of the plan um, but maybe you know just had some elements that were slightly mismatched for the nature of this year but again on balance I think that the general consensus we're hearing is that it's a, a real net positive for the league um, but that was certainly something that we didn't we didn't focus on too much going into the year but because we didn't know what this season would look like we obviously came from uh, a bubble a bubble scenario which is just very different with without any travel and you know without the, the sort of back-to-backs and, and structure that we had uh, for this season so that that was slightly new but otherwise I think it's been like right in line with our expectations and again we're just crossing our fingers that we get some great competition in the next two weeks and, and ultimately some uh, some really incredible games uh, leading into the playoffs well thanks so much uh, for coming on evan we really appreciate it yeah i think we could all agree that uh, making the regular season more competitive uh, mean more uh, is a goal that uh, is a worthy one and it seems like it's going well for the nba so far thanks guys all right guys let's get rolling here sorry about this we uh Nice, solid eight minutes of technical difficulties. It happens. Um, but so thank you to everybody for joining us on Locker Room. Um, as many of you know, we we go through the questions and we do them in speaker request order. And so we will start with John Perry. Hello, guys. 
So I was talking to some of my friends. We were t- having a discussion about Anthony Davis and Giannis, and we were comparing them, and we were comparing if they were the swap roles, how were the Bucks and the Lakers uh, fair. And I just want to know your guys' thoughts between them, them and who's more valuable and who's a better, like, for instance, offensive player or defensive player. It's interesting. We, we kind of went through this pretty recently in terms of uh, the, the top 10 players pod that Nate and I did. And so they're they're different defensively. I think that you can say in certain ways the parallel is that they're both best as rim protectors, being a part of, of of that you know protecting the rim without fouling, and they're both limited at getting through screens. I actually like Davis more in certain respects as a perimeter defender than Giannis. I think that AD at the at the five is is better than Giannis is at the five. And then offensively, it does depend on on what kind of a role you're looking for. I think that Giannis, because he's better with the ball in his hands, I think that he is superior but not perfect as a number one. But I think that Anthony Davis, this came up. Um, we were just some we got quite a question in mailbag. I think it was about you know which top which players would you want together? And what makes Davis such a valuable number two is that not only is he a great defensive center, but also his skill set as a role man in transition. We'll see how the shooting is. That fits really well with a variety of different number ones. So I would say if you told me offhand that this player has to be the best offensive player on my team, I would rather have Giannis. But if I had another somebody else, you know, whether it's, you know, somebody high end like Harden or Seth Curry or somebody a little bit lower than that, I would probably want Davis. Yeah, no arguments here. I, I think Davis, particularly just with how good he was in the playoffs last year and that Giannis was relatively ineffective in the playoffs last year compared to what he did in the regular season. Davis is the guy for me until further notice. Any thoughts on that, John? So last, uh, last in the last year's playoffs, if Giannis was on the Lakers, do you guys see them going to, and making the finals and winning them? No, I don't. I, I mean, it, obviously they would have built their team a little bit differently, but AD also, I mean, let's not forget if we're going to include the offensive end as well, AD was unbelievable shooting the jump shot yeah. last year. And so I, I think AD both working at more as a traditional rim protector, you know, I think he and Giannis as a guy defending one-on-one in the perimeter are kind of about the same, but AD even, I mean, he's... They put AD as the primary defender, like on Kawhi, when they're playing against Kawhi. Obviously, they didn't play the Clippers in the playoffs last year. But, you know, Giannis hasn't really been asked to do that. He's probably going to have to do that more in a net series. There was a big clamor for him to guard Jimmy Butler. He really didn't do that and didn't do it effectively, whereas Davis had some good moments guarding Jimmy Butler until they changed up on their scheme a little bit. So I think Davis has more versatility. I think he's better as a traditional rim protector, better as a traditional pick-and-roll defender, like Danny talks about it, how it, he really caused problems for some of those, like Goran Dragic, for example, trying to score in the mid-range, even during the, the one half that Dragic was healthy. So I, I think Davis can do more things and maybe at a higher level and more valuable things than Giannis in the playoffs. But obviously we got another playoffs going up. We'll see if that remains the case. Thank you, guys. Thanks, John. Um, we will go to Blake. Blake, Blake, you are on the air. Gentlemen, how we doing? Good, how are you? Great. So I'm a longtime Timberwolves fan, and but not a hater. I'm a longtime listener of Dunkdown. Um, and my question for you guys is, how has your perception of Anthony Edwards, maybe, let's say, 75% and 95% outcome changed over the course of this season now that you've seen him in NBA games? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think probably the biggest thing to me is that uh, I would say the separation that he's 
able to get off the dribble and with his first step uh, has really looked good, has looked better to me than it did in college. And he's he's shooting a little better than I thought he might, especially considering that he's kind of kept up that pretty difficult diet of shots that he had uh, in George, at Georgia. And he's shown some flashes of passing that have maybe been a little bit ahead of where I thought they might be, particularly on the move. He'll like throw that little bounce pass to a cutter when he's driving along the baseline. So the, the flashes have been a little bit more intriguing than I thought they would be. So I feel better about him now than I did when he was drafted. But I also don't think that he I – mean, part of the reason why I had him third on my board was – that I always I felt like he did have the upside that you couldn't totally rule that out due to his physical tools. So uh, I think it, I haven't changed too much on the upside, but I have changed a little bit on the chance of him realizing it. Well, and I'll add in, there have been some possessions where Edwards has looked very good defensively. You know, he has the capability physically of being a good defender, and that is positive. However, those flashes being so few and far between is definitely concerning, and you wonder about, you know, yeah, he's 19 now, but how many, you know, how, how where is he going to get to by 23, 24? And so... I don't think that I've seen stuff defensively that has really toned down my 75th, 45th, or 95th percentile outcomes, but he still has to actually do it. And and that is a difference, you know, to invoke a a prior Timberwolf with Andrew Wiggins. Like, people always talked about Wiggins having the physical tools to be a good defender, and he's better now than he was then, but he never got to that, at least so far, to that, like, all-NBA level that he theoretically could have gotten to. Interesting. I, I think it's a it's a great hypothetical question, at least from my experience. And you guys tell me if you feel differently. Um, some of these shooting guards, high usage shooting guards, have the highest variance between maybe what they come into the NBA as versus where they get to eventually. I think of Shea or Zach Levine, and he definitely feels in that boat, and he could end up someplace similar to where he is now or someplace far above. It'll be fun to watch over these next couple of years. What I'm really interested in with Edwards, primarily for next season, I think this season is a little bit, it's a little bit weird of a sample for a couple different reasons is you think about there are kind of two different paths for him offensively. One is on ball and one is off ball. And I think Edwards has potential in both of those boxes, but I'm, I've am i always, and that's part of why I was lower on Edwards and some, I've always believed that the off ball box is more, is more intriguing with him than the on ball one. Just, I, I don't think that he can necessarily create reliably good shots for himself and others, but I'll, I'll feel a lot more comfortable in what, in that assessment a year from now, not only because it's a year more of information, but also because of what this year will mean. He gets an off season to work on, on everything else. And so I think that's going to be uh, key to watch, but thank you very much to Blake. Um, that was a really good question. And um, we'll go to Cameron. Cameron, you are on the air. Cameron, are you there? Nice. Oh, yeah, right, we got you. Go. Cool. Hi. Uh, first of all, I want to say I was watching uh, your guys' NBA cast uh, last night, and it was great. Um, but I got to say it was quite jarring to actually see your guys' faces and see words coming out of your mouth. Um, it's terrifying, isn't it? It's insanely terrifying. And neither, <laughs> of you, neither of you looked the way I thought you would look, and so I actually was like very uncomfortable. Um, but no, it was great. Um, so I wanted to ask about your guys' player ranking for James Harden because – 
Um, injuries aside, if we if we were excluding the injuries and kind of his age coming into it, um, I want to know why you guys think his playoff performance last year and previous few years um, hurts him. Because when I look at it, I don't understand. Maybe I don't understand, but I just think he hasn't had a great supporting cast around him, and his offensive impact still carries over to the playoffs. And if it doesn't, can you explain why? Yeah, I think even good. So, so you're saying just from like 2019 and 2020 playoffs, that's that's what you're focusing yeah, on? Yeah, because you guys were saying how, I mean, I think you guys ranked him, I, I thought he should be ranked a little bit higher. And so I just thought, and you were mentioning his, his impact in the playoffs, and I was a little bit confused. Yeah, so, so I, I think a, a couple of things, you know, that he, you know, even the proof is in the pudding ultimately with that loss to the Warriors in 2019, even without Kevin Durant, they lost a, a couple of games to the Warriors. And I think they probably had an equal or better talent outside of the stars. Houston definitely had better role players, I think, in that series. And Harden, you know, you just, if you go back to look at his overall playoff performance, you can't think of that many games where he's powered his team at the end of games. Uh, I think part of it, too, is just that some of the tricks don't work as well in against elite defenders who aren't going to follow him as much, who... He he does. He's not a guy who has like a ton of moves and a ton of counters. He'll he's kind of got two or three things that he can do and do it at an extraordinarily high level. But if you take that away, he can struggle a little bit. Also, a big part of it goes down to defense as well. Where you're, I think that his defensive impact. If you are not, because we're thinking about you know what would you be on kind of a, a random team, and you have to play a switching system with James Harden. You can't do it any other way, essentially, because he just can't get through a screen. They've protected him like that for five years now, essentially. And he could be okay in a switching system, but he's still not amazing against the best teams. So I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that he kind of has an outside negative defensive impact compared to a lot of stars. And then also that I think he's just driving offense at the absolute highest levels. I mean, you're, you're just not really able to point to even one great playoff series that he's had against really high level of competition. And so I think that's why he's got to be a little bit lower than some of these guys. And then also it comes into the impact of age, reduced ability to finish at the rim, potential injuries going forward. You know, that's a little bit priced in if we're talking about starting a season and then going all the way through a playoffs right now, you know, he may not be at the point anymore where he can just carry a team and average 37 a game uh, for an entire season without breaking down a little bit. So long answer there, I realize, but I think it's, it's a, a nuanced subject. Uh, do you, th- what do you think I'm missing there, Cameron? If, if uh, cause it, it seems like you're kind of more on the hardened defender side there. Yeah, I, I know that those are all fair points. Um, I guess with the in terms regards to the defense, um, he you do have to play a switching system, but I also I kind of think he's pretty decent against like he's pretty versatile in his role. Um, so like even though you have to switch with him, he's pretty decent against like bigger players or forwards. Um, you know he's pretty built for his size. So, but I, I guess you're right. He hasn't had like a great any great individual series. Um, uh, but I, you know the, the at least the impact metrics in the regular season they always are pretty much he is the best offensive player in terms of impact and I know that doesn't mean that he's the best in the playoffs but um, I just thought that was yeah if well, our yeah, ranking I mean, were limited exclusively to the regular season I, I think you would probably have to have him higher also I think it's just that there's uh, 
there's just so much competition out there at, at this point too. And, and I, you know, there might be a little bit of hardened fatigue in my mind too, where I'm kind of like, all right, James Harden is kind of, he's had plenty of chances here to show that he really is truly a top five player in the playoffs and he hasn't chosen it. So I'm going to kind of give some other guys chances to prove that they can do it instead. Maybe, maybe that's a little bit part of it too, but sorry, Danny, I, I, you haven't had a chance to react to this one yet. Well, and, and I think the, the other challenge is that Harden, there have been a few series over the last couple of years when the Rockets, when the Rockets had better offenses when he was on the floor, but they very rarely had good offensive series overall. And so obviously in certain ones, like the OKC series last year, that's not necessarily all his fault. And Harden was an effective individual scorer, but then you also kind of, get to that big eye view and the Rockets were playing a team that was worse than they were and it took seven games and it was a knockdown drag out in that seventh game a lot of kind of gross offensive performances overall there and there but there have been some you know that that I think parts of it have been there but the whole the whole not being there and that being really consistent throughout his career and the idea that some of what Harden does gets toned down with superior competition and so, I mean, I would argue, and yes, it could have easily ended in four or five games last year, but it didn't. You know, Nikola Jokic, the performance that he put out there in the playoffs last year, that offense plus defense, that was as good as anything I can recall from Harden individually. And Jokic, you know, we're, we're talking about most valuable offense players. If we're talking the theory of the player, which is something Nate talked about a lot in the the top 10, like if I were to choose, you know, for a year moving forward, including the playoffs, which one of those two guys I'd rather have, it would be Jokic. And that's like, and Harden's a wonderful offensive player. He's in there. But the the other big part of that, Nate brought it up a little bit, but I think it's important is remember we when we we're doing that, the criteria is a, a season starting from this point. And I'm not, Harden has aged better than I expected. And I give him credit for that. But we're already seeing some of the injury related stuff. And this, when he, even though he has so much craft, when he loses a little bit, I think it's going to affect him a lot. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks, yeah, last thing, Last thing to say on that, too, you're uh, not, I guess probably the other thing, too, is that Harden has just had some very memorable, just terrible games. And last year, statistically, was actually probably his best playoff season. But also, like, they just went out with a whimper to the, to the Lakers in that series. And part of that was because Russell Westbrook was so terrible. But they're able to just double-team Harden and take it out of his hands. And he's basically kind of not a threat for the rest of the possession at that point. He's just standing out by half court. So, and, you know, 2018, 55% true shooting in the playoffs. 2019, uh, 57% free throw rates way down from where they were during the, the regular year. So it, it seems like, and I think while there are other players like LeBron James, for example, I think raises his game in the playoffs, Harden does not. And so we're, we focus more on the playoffs. But yeah, it's already takes so long uh, on that one there, but obviously. Obviously, uh, it's a really interesting discussion, and we probably would have hardened lower than a lot of people. I acknowledge that. And, and we would have in other years, and I think that not, not that that is necessarily predictive moving forward, but I think that where we had him, because remember, it's kind of predictive for the next year, I think that that is largely borne out if you're looking at the entirety. Well, we'll have to see. Um, I'll mention we have, a, thankfully, we have a ton of speaker requests in. So we'll for, we'll probably do some answers a little bit faster and some answers a little a little bit longer, just depending on how much we feel like we have to say. Don't feel hurt if it ends up being shorter. We just want to get to as many as we can. Kyle, you are on the air. Hey guys, uh, quick question for you: Out of the 2021 free agents who end up signing with a new team, not one they're on right now, who do you think gets the most guaranteed money? Okay, let's throw out some of the candidates here for that. I'll peruse my free agent rankings. So signing with a new team. Right. So like um, not Kawhi, for instance. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the crazy the most... thing is that you're, even though forwards are so scarce, you're probably looking at guards just because the forward line is so, is so weak. 
Um, I would say the top, you know, you know who, oh, who's signing with a new team? Because I was going to say Chris Paul would be an interesting contender, but that's not the conversation you're getting at. Mike Conley, Spencer Dinwood. I, I got, I got one for you, uh, John Collins. Yeah, that's totally possible. Now, now, I and I, I don't know if that falls into your category. If he signs a restricted free agent offer sheet with another team, and then it gets matched, that is him technically signing with another team. <laughs> but, but I mean, because the restricted restricted free agents are are always tough because you just never know whether they're, they're going to get matched uh, or not. So I, I think uh, I mean, Demar Derozan is still a possibility, but yeah, overall guaranteed money. It wouldn't it wouldn't stun yeah. me if it's Norman Powell. As amazing as that kind of sounds, yeah. If we're, well, if we're and uh, Duncan Robinson too is another one where maybe he just gets that. Like, like it's I I'm gonna guess if either Robinson or Collins were to sign an offer sheet, it would be them, and it probably would be them returning to their regular teams anyway. Because I, I don't really see another. I mean, could it be Kyle Lowry or Conley? Yeah, maybe it'd be Conley or Dinwiddie. Who knows what people think? Could be. I mean, it could possibly be Schroeder, but it seems like Schroeder is just going to return to the Lakers. Yeah, and I think like I think Chris Paul could end up signing a lucrative per season contract, but probably not more guaranteed money. Like basically, he would opt out and then sign sign a longer term deal with the Suns. But yeah, it seems like he really wants to be there. Yeah, so we'll have to we'll have to see. Um, what's uh What's your pick? Yeah, I was thinking it was going to be either uh, Duncan Robinson or or actually maybe Lonzo. I, I was not including Collins because I do think he's going to resign with the Hawks. So I, I was not counting signing an offer sheet and then going back as yeah. in that category. But I think the overall point is pretty crappy free agency class if you want to actually go out and sign somebody else to your team that isn't already on it. Yeah, and that's why we might see, um, Nate and I have both mentioned this in the past, we could see a couple of teams. Oklahoma City is probably the most obvious here, but San Antonio, a couple others could be there. Teams that have space but don't necessarily need to get better right now, you could see them make offer sheets because usually you don't see, like, for example, we brought this up with Dallas. Like, Dallas is not going to roll the dice with an offer sheet because it, because they're not, you know, they're not they're too risky to leave with nothing. But Oklahoma City, if they make something to, I don't know, Gary Trent Jr. or John Collins, like, really, wherever they want to go, if they strike out on those players, okay, you roll that space over. You do, there is an opportunity cost because there's some facilitated stuff there's a bunch of other things but there are some unusual circumstances this year for teams that the cost of striking out like signing and then and then getting matched is not as pronounced and so we could see that once or twice cool thanks guys thanks Kyle. uh we will move on to larry larry you are on the air hey guys warriors fan here i was a little curious did you guys read an article a while back which talked about the warriors analytics team um, I was really surprised that the until very recently the Warriors had one guy in their analytics teams seemed very low. So I guess just a few multi-tiered questions. A, um, what, the, how big is the size of a kind of a typical NBA analytics team? And do like more analytically, um, you know, regarded general managers like Daryl Morey, Sam Hinkies, do they have larger analytical staff? And B, um, why don't like richer teams pay more i just feel like that's a really easy way to get a competitive advantage um just you know without worrying about the salary cap yeah so the analytics team is interesting and i never know this i'm not uh, under the hood with a lot of these i mean i think probably the largest would be maybe like four or five and uh, obviously your responsibilities could kind of bleed over some guys do cap and analytics 
some guys also for analytics, it's more of like a programming position of trying to come up with metrics that are just going to capture what maybe the senior analytics guy wants, but you're just using the sport view data. How can I program these metrics that we want, you know, to recognize a pick and roll, say, or a post up or a turnover or, or whatever, uh, or a screen uh, with just using these XYZ coordinates that they get from what used to be sport view is now second spectrum. Uh, a lot of these positions, analytics positions is our, you know, so I think like uh, the box maybe, you know, had like two or three people. Uh, a lot of these analytics positions are kind of not, looking for like data oriented people, but they're also not really looking for like that much actual basketball knowledge. And so what ends up happening is you're looking for guys who can kind of just still do work. That's not really that actualized. It's like, okay, you work for an NBA team, but are you, do you really have any decision-making power or you're just, all right, here, I'm going to make this model. And then the decision makers are going to do whatever they're going to do with it. That's not that sexy, particularly when there's this sports premium where you just get paid so much less in that type of a position than you would, you know, for, if you're a great programmer or you're a great data scientist in you know other aspects of the private market. So it's a, a little uh, tangential to your question there. But I think a lot of teams just because you can also get a lot of this stuff from second spectrum just by contracting out. And so I think a lot of teams maybe come to the idea of like, hey, we have a good understanding of what analytics are. Is it really worth it to come up with our own proprietary metric? Are we really learning that much about this kind of stuff that's so much better than you know what we can just see with our eyes or, or do with somewhat more traditional stats? Like, do we need to make up our own version of RAPM or something like that. You know, I, I think a lot of teams, is there really that much more value there? And particularly when you're going to be having to hire these people and is there's going to be a lot of turnover because for a lot of these people, there's not really much of a path to growth, both in terms of money or decision-making because they're not kind of, they don't have that much basketball knowledge. And maybe, you know, if you're just sitting in a room coding all day, you're not really going to acquire that either. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think they're, I was surprised. I mean, I'm not surprised, but I'm, you know, the Warriors have kind of always been a little bit shorter staff than you would have thought. I mean, that might be a way for them to get an advantage. Uh, but then also the decision makers have to actually use that stuff. And I'm just not sure that there's like, oh man, we've got this unbelievable metric that no one else has that's going to tell us when guys are good. You know, in 2007, yeah, that probably was a big advantage. Now, I don't think that's really uh, that big of an advantage. So sorry for the long answer there. Uh, maybe I'm not giving enough credit to analytics and what some teams are doing. They'll never tell you what that is, uh, of course. So maybe that's part of why I don't know it. But uh, it, it may be something where it's now that everyone's doing it, it's not as important as it was 15 years ago when only a few teams were doing it. Yeah, thanks for that. So I guess as a Warriors fan, it just came out because the Warriors have been pretty poor at the margins of drafting, for example. And I was like, that's kind of what triggered my curiosity. It's like, was, I was wondering if like, the Warriors is having like one guy in the analytics class has made them make some very questionable, I think, draft decisions, especially in the margins. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe they could have listened to that stuff more. Although, you know, for example, James Wiseman and probably, you know, LaMelo maybe to a certain extent. But like James Wiseman, you could have had 30 guys on your analytics staff and there wasn't enough to go on with James Wiseman. You're probably ultimately the main decision makers would have to listen to them. And maybe if they had 30 people instead of one saying, well, don't draft Wiseman, draft LaMelo instead, his analytics are amazing. Um, 
maybe things would have been different. I, I don't know. I, I do think the Warriors could, as a general principle, could make a little bit more investments into the executive side of their organization and that they probably haven't done enough on player development. Like they spend a lot on players and they spend a lot on kind of the business side, but they don't necessarily spend as much in some of those support areas. Maybe they're starting to learn that they kind of have to do that. Um, okay. Uh, Dan, you got anything to add on that or should we, should we uh, move on to another speaker? No, I, th- I think we can move on. You, you hit it pretty well. We'll go to Derek. Derek, you are on the air. Derek, you there? Where is he? Hello? Yes. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, I was wondering if you guys had a sense of how teams feel about the rise of celebrity trainers, like the Drew Hanlons and the uh, Chris Brickleys of the world. Um, and I was wondering kind of specifically, is their tutelage encouraged and welcomed by teams? Um, and can it sometimes be at odds with teams who might have different development goals for players? And I'm also just wondering how that's changing now, because I see these guys as becoming celebrities in their own right in the league and who have their own kind of leverage and powers the same way that uh, the players are starting to have or the players do. But I feel like these guys are starting to have it as well. Yeah, I think to some extent it can be an uneasy alliance. I think it is important, though, for players to have some kind of a voice outside the organization. And I think eventually, in most cases, they'll reach a detente. And because Jimmy Butler is the perfect example of this, right? If you were the Chicago Bulls bringing in Jimmy Butler as the number 30 overall pick in 2011, and he doesn't play at all his first year, second year, all right, you're a great defender. We want to work on your shooting threes like really want you to be this three and d guy no we got derrick rose in our organization we're running stuff through noah we don't need you to be like some big score oh we just signed Pau gasol in 2014 yeah you're gonna still play that three and d role for us and so does jimmy butler ever develop he's one of the greatest one season skill improvements to me ever between 14 and 15 does he ever develop into a superstar if it's just chicago developing i think his his guy is like travel Gaines. i want to say is, is the guy's name and maybe not right like because and every player wants to determine exactly what their ceiling could be and a lot of that involves individual work that maybe you know teams work on on that with guys but they also want you to be within the team concept and they're always going to be skewed in some ways by what they think you can be and so i think just getting a different approach also just simply getting away from the team for a little bit for a summer too. I think you're just going to burn out if you're with the same people all the time, getting a fresh approach. Now, uh, if you're doing some shit that's getting the guy injured or you're just not working at all on your three pointer. And that's what the team wants you doing. But I think the best trainers, the best organizations are able to kind of work it out so that there's not really a, a, a big issue there. And also, you know, some guys will just have enough power to just get their guy brought in to the organization. Like Andre Guadala had that, uh, obviously LeBron with his guys, uh, those guys will have access to the facility. So I don't think it's a huge deal, but I'm sure, especially if the guy just sucks, like sometimes that'll, that'll be the case. And sometimes, hey, teams suck at development too, and you need to have your own guy, right? Like I don't think the Warriors had enough development in the last couple of years before they really revamped that for uh, – the 1920 season. Um, so, yeah, so, sorry to monopolize that one day. I figured that's something I'd concentrate a little bit more on than you. So uh. you, you are correct, sir. That is, <laughs> that is something that you, the world that you know better than I do. 
No, um, they get, and I, I appreciate that insight. That's something um, I get a sense that as fans, we don't aren't always thinking about the, the kind of many different power plays and kind of, I don't want to say tensions, but, but this sort of constant uh, sort of struggle going on in the background in terms of, you know, even role players are all sort of hoping to be stars, I'm sure, um, in their own right. Um, and I, I was thinking, kind of thinking about this, this is a special situation, but Jason Tatum working out with uh, Kobe that summer on all this like kind of mid-range jump shot sort of footwork and then coming back and just having a terrible season. And I, I'm not sure that's really related, <laughs> but uh, but it did kind of make me laugh. And it always made me wonder after when I see the uh, these guys on Instagram, if teams are just rolling their eyes at them, sort of building their brands doing this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, to a certain point, just like in many other fields, the people who run teams are control freaks and would like to have more control over the process. But you understand how those things can ebb and flow. Uh, thanks, Derek, for the question. I thought that was, that was fun. Uh, let's go to Brandon. Brandon, you are now on the air. You are muted right now, Brandon. Hey, sorry about that. Um, Danny and Nate, appreciate your work. I had a question about COVID-19 restrictions and NBA arenas. Uh, Today we saw a Damian Lillard tweet about Oregon's COVID restrictions and not allowing fans back at sporting events. He said, uh, quote, so we're going to be the only damn team in the whole league with no fans, end quote. And so I was wondering with the data that we do have that suggests that home court advantage has been weakened by the lack of in-arena fans, in your view, how much of a competitive disadvantage might the Blazers face in a playoff series if they were playing against a team that allows a significant number of fans in their arenas. And just curious if you think he has a gripe or if you think it doesn't really matter enough, like in a seven game series. Um, no, I think it is. It's going to matter. Now the data has been all over there. Kevin Pelton has been tracking it where early in the season without fans, there wasn't much of an advantage. Then when some teams started allowing fans in, you could see that they had an advantage. They were winning about 55% of their games. Then though, it almost seemed like there was fatigue and that advantage dropped off a little bit. And now of course, most teams have fans in the building, you know, having been in the building for, one game with fans, which is the Warriors, there's only about 3,000 fans. I think they're bumping it up into the 6,000 or so range for this last homestand that they're going to have. But having been in that building, it does matter a, a little bit, particularly if you have passionate fans. I know people have talked a lot about how Madison Square Garden fans uh, have been really getting into it. Without courtside seating, maybe there isn't quite as much a, a, of a feel and not quite as much noise down on the floor. But I, I think it does, it is going to matter, if only perhaps – just it, it could just be a self-fulfilling prophecy psychologically in the players' minds. And then, you know, whether he has a beef in terms of the, you know, whether it's actually safe or not. I mean, I, I have some opinions on that, too, but I, I don't know if that's kind of outside the, the scope of your question to get into that, Brandon. But uh, uh, and, and by the way, thanks for uh, all of your uh, promotion of our work, by the way. We, we appreciate that. You're doing good stuff up there. Um, yeah. Anything, any reaction to, on that? I mean, I didn't see Dave's comments yet. Uh, today but i I assume uh it was pretty much what brandon said yeah yeah i I guess the other really quick thing i mean do you think that players are going to start lobbying for this more publicly like if one arena allows you know six thousand people another one allows eleven thousand i'm just curious if you think talking about this stuff is going to be more common as different states i think it's going to be like the play-in where players start to care about it more when it starts to affect (laughs) yeah so if, <laughs> if 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 the Lakers happen to go down in a series and maybe maybe certain a certain person will bubble about it a little bit and then it will become a thing. But yeah, I, I think the other the other part of it that is, is interesting is it also feeds into a lot of the kind of you could call it the better impulses of fan service where you know you 
hear a lot about, you know, from when you're in arenas or everything else, like Nate and I through our work of like, oh, we couldn't have done this one without the fans and everything else. So advocating for the fans makes the people who already support you happier. So well, without getting into kind of some of the COVID specific nuances of it, it is one of those things where you can you can sort of, to an extent, rally against something without really hurting anybody, though there, of course, can be big, big exceptions to that rule. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Um, Jake, you are on the air. Jake, you there? Uh, as will be the case for people, if if I don't hear you and you, you we, I cut you, just um, I'll I'll see you back in the queue. Hopefully, I'll remember your name and we can roll from there. Sounds good. Oh no, oh, Jake, no, he's there. here. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Jake? Uh, this is now the second time where uh, the acceptance of the speaker request I think basically leads to me having to reopen the app. Um, so I got to figure that out with uh with locker room. But uh, wanted to uh ask you guys the question about uh, the playoffs uh, somewhat broadly. Um, I think uh, as we get closer, uh, maybe especially this year, uh, it seems like there's uh, a lot of uh, narratives around, you know, nobody wants to see Steph uh, in, in the playoffs, you know, Utah would hate to have to deal with the Warriors, uh, you know, you know, in the eighth spot, uh, or, you know, uh, nobody really wants to play, uh, you know, X team with a, a superstar, even if the supporting cast isn't great. And some of that, I think, you know, makes sense just because, you know, the superstars get a lot of coverage and, uh, you know, elite offense is, you know, obviously one of those uh, skills that is most valuable in a playoff setting. But I'm curious how you think, like, how far do you think that can go? So, you know, for example, like, um, you know, Embiid, uh, versus the Bucks, you know, where the Bucks are like pretty clearly better, in my opinion, like two through five, but Embiid might be the best player on the floor. Like, how far do you think uh, elite offensive talent can uh, elevate the team uh, that might not be as strong in other ways? So there, there are a couple interesting nuances to that. I think one of them that is particularly relevant, you brought up the Warriors early on, is the idea of how you're changing your minute apportionment. So for the Warriors, this was especially true when Wiseman was available, which he is, of course, not now. But with the Warriors, giving a higher proportion of their minutes to their best players makes them a much better team. Like the Warriors have been a have been a pretty capable team. I was going to see if I could pull it in time with what they've been when Stephen Curry's been on the floor. And yeah, they're, they're about plus four, I think, with him on the floor. Yeah, plus 3.8, um, including the glass version. And so I, I think that, you know, so having a higher proportion of your minutes being the plus four team versus being the negative 10 team, roughly, that they've been when, when Curry's off, that makes them materially harder to stop. But you also run into the, the basically, then you can get into the idea of the counters and everything else. So it's like with, with Embiid, this is such a fascinating question of like, if you can take away or at least reduce the effectiveness of what they do best, do they have other things? And so sometimes depth two, to fr- two through five helps, sometimes it doesn't. So I would say the bigger shift is the giving more minutes to your best players. And so that helps certain teams and hurts others, just depending on how how a team's rotation is structured, how their talent is structured. But in terms of like the star player, like, I mean, you can see some star-centric teams really struggle, some really thrive. And maybe the biggest differentiator is if you're facing high-level opposition, this has come up with Kyrie and Kawhi and numerous other people over the years, if can you still get yours against great competition? If you can, then yeah, totally more dangerous and everything else. If you can't, probably a little bit let a little bit more dangerous to put all your eggs into a single basket. Yeah, I think it goes back to, in particular to in the course of trying to stop this one guy, are you now opening things up for the lesser players on the team? Right, Steph is a perfect example of that, where he, he causes all this confusion off the ball, and if you don't have a switching defense, you basically your only way to stop him is to put two on the ball 
when he gets it into a pick and roll, and then that opens up that four on three game from Draymond. And maybe Embiid could fall into that category too if he's someone that you have to double team all the time in the post. Same thing with Jokic, and and then obviously if can the remaining talent on that team take advantage of the openings, even if they aren't you know individually the greatest players in the world. So I think that that's kind of the formula for a team with the, the best player in the series, but maybe not the best uh, overall talent to win is if that player is someone where all right, we, we just don't have an answer for this guy, even if we have a more overall talent. Um, so that, that's basically my, my thought on that, but it's, it's tough to say, I, honestly, I do think it is more possible, like the whole best player in the series always wins. I think that is less true now than maybe it was 20 or 30 years ago there, you know, and maybe, maybe that's just because LeBron James might've been the best player in a lot of those series against the Warriors, but they just had so much talent that it, it overwhelmed them. Whereas you just didn't see that as much before. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you know, with LeBron, I always think about that out- outrageous game, uh, you know, that is just going to be forgotten to history because uh, everyone's just going to remember, you know, the J.R. Smith. I think, oh, yeah, yeah. Game, game one in 2018. Yeah, maybe the best game he's ever played. Yeah, uh, you know, like I think about, you know, uh, maybe it was uh, 2017, the Draymond game where he was outrageous, but they lost the series. Um, it, it, I, I kind of feel uh, I, I feel like uh, we end up losing some of these spectacular games to history um, because uh, the better team, you know, the, or the team that might have more collective talent outweighs these individual performances. But uh, appreciate your thoughts, guys. Thanks, Jake. Um, we could do a question. I thought this was interesting from Spencer in the in the uh, discussion section. Do you see rim protectors going the same route as NFL running backs? They're important, but a surplus of options makes any one rim protector not too valuable. And I think there's there's some truth to that. I have become partial to the multi, you know, the multi-headed approach that makes it actually very similar to running backs, but that's in terms of the overall center position. So if you don't have one of those top tier players, somebody who especially you're going to want on the floor during crunch time, that's the dream, but there's even a sub-tier below that, then I think more options is generally better. And now that can be you pay one person a lot more if their skill set is more rare, you think they have long-term potential. But so the idea there could be, you know, I, I think of the, there was a Warriors team that did that where, you know, you have Zaza Pachulia, you have David West, maybe you can go and then Draymond at center, you can do different things. So you have different players, all of whom you expect to play 20 minutes or fewer, but you have more or less in a given game. That's sort of what the Lakers are doing, but sort of not what the Lakers are doing. Their situation's more complicated. What do you think, Nate? So rim protector, like if you want to say centers rather than rim protectors, I, I think uh, I agree. I think that the analogizing of the center position to running backs makes some sense. Now, I think part of that thinking evolved just because centers as a whole had a really down period in the middle part of the last decade, where if you look at the quality of player who is making all NBA center from, you know, 2012 to 2015, as opposed to this year, like it's not even close, right? Um, But if you're talking just about rim protection, I would say that there are not that many guys who truly make a difference as a rim protector. If you want to say, you know, Joel Embiid, Rudy Gobert, Miles Turner, maybe put Clint Capella in that category, Brooke Lopez, Jakob Pertl, maybe, you know, Zubats is kind of up there. Um, But other than that, there's nobody where you're, 
I think those guys are really a cut above. Whereas, and Bam Adebayo is a little bit different. He's not as much of a rim protector, but he's got the versatility. AD would be in that category as well if he actually were playing center. Uh, maybe you could put Giannis in that category a little bit. But those are the guys who really make a difference, and they do make a difference. You see it in the numbers. You see the opponent field goal shooting at the rim. You see their uh, the overall defense of their teams. If you're going down to just the level below that, you're just like, yeah, you know, this guy's kind of big. He stands there. Like, he'll provide some deterrence, but he's not that much different than 10 or 15 other guys. Then, yeah, I agree with you. But I do think for your top five to seven guys, there is still a lot of value added there. So I wouldn't analogize those guys to the running back position. Well, maybe that is like running backs where there are a few that are good enough and then the rest of them are kind of fit in. But let's get to Patrick. Patrick, you are on the air. Patrick? Oh, Patrick is gone. If he pops back in, I'll put him back in the queue. Um, Steven, you are on the air. Uh, hey guys, uh, Spurs fans here. I would like to ask how would you evaluate the job Pop has done in terms of coaching and player development this season? Some Spurs fans seem to be really frustrated that Pop has been playing vests like Rudy Gay and Paddy Mills over young guys like David Vassell and Lucas Shamanich, and perhaps not putting the ball enough in the hands of Lion Walker. Yeah, I think it's it, their defense has been good. And you, Jakob Pertl, for example, has really developed this year. He's having a, a really good year. Keldon Johnson it, has developed uh, as well. Vassell, he's a rookie. And I think he's still playing. You know, he's, I think for most rookies like that, you know, if you give them 10 or 15 minutes a game and say, hey, on an individual game basis, you, you can earn more. Uh, now, the one guy where I think there's the, I would agree with the concern is with Rudy Gay, because I think he's just kind of cooked. I don't think he's really winning you a, a lot of games. But, you know, Samanich is someone who's very raw. I think he needs to be brought along slowly, particularly on defense. Uh, you know, Drew Eubanks is another guy who's developed pretty well, I think, for this team. So I, I think it's been pretty decent. I, I've Pop's development and the Spurs' development isn't necessarily the way I would always do things. But the overall results with, you know, getting a team that's around 500 where – you're doing it most other than with DeRozan. You're basically doing it with all guys who they drafted in the second half of the first round and it low in the 20s for a lot of them. I think ultimately, even if it's not exactly how I would do it, you can't quibble too much with the results. Well, and the other, the other part of it, this came up for me. I remember there was a discussion I got into about KJ McDaniels years ago is that playing time isn't the only measure of, of development, especially when we're looking long term. You know, you can, there's, even though there are very few practices, like on court reps are often overrated because that's what we see. But there's a lot of other development that happens off the court, other things. And with Lonnie Walker, I, he's playing 25 minutes a game. He's getting, you know, he's not playing as large a role within the offense. But I don't think when I watch Lonnie Walker, I don't think, oh, this guy's going to be that every down, you know, initiator for for a team. And so, yeah, maybe him getting a few more touches and everything else would be would be possibly beneficial to his development. But I don't see him missing out on that opportunity. And if you, even if you did, I mean, you could bring up something like Shea Gildas Alexander where Shea, you know, not, you know, obviously you don't want to say everything that happened with him is the reason why he's successful, but he played a lot off ball. He did a lot of other stuff and it doesn't seem that he is any worse for wear now. I mean, other than his injuries, but that's, that's a totally separate thing. So I think that sometimes because it's the easiest to identify fans think of this guy's not playing enough. This guy doesn't have the ball in his hands as the reason why things are different. But generally speaking, there's a lot more that goes on. Not to say teams get infinite deference, but I think that it's fair to consider that there's other stuff. Yeah, what, what about you, Stephen? You talked about uh, what Spurs fans think, think overall, but what's your opinion on it? 
Um, I personally think that uh, the Spurs coaching staff has done a solid job on that end. Like, Jakob has become an impactful starting center. Uh, DeJounte Murray has shown some progress on his creation and pull-up shooting. Um, perhaps Kevin Johnson and Lonnie Walker has shown more flashes on, like, driving to the rim and more kind of off-board second-side creation for Lonnie. Um, for me, uh, they could have played the young guys a bit more, but if, like, five Five or six young players are in the rotation and kind of on the track on of development. I'm not complaining much. Yeah, I mean the Spurs. Great, you and I, Nate and I, were higher on them. We both picked their over pretty pretty comfortably, and they've hit that over even with with some tough tough sledding recently. And I mean that is a statement that they've been better than people anticipated, and I think some of that should be attributed to coaching. I mean, players deserve a ton of credit too. Uh, But Jared, Jared, you are on the air. Hey guys, thanks for uh, taking my call. Um. I had a question uh, about young cores, um, specifically about New Orleans, because uh, uh, my conspiracy theory, so to speak, is that uh, they're going to be under the uh, Atlanta Hawks style pressure to win next year. And um, so I I ran some numbers uh, or I looked up some of the numbers on uh, uh, NBA.com, the uh, play type numbers, and um, because it seems to me that uh, their biggest problem is that they're more of a collection of parts rather than a whole. And so I looked at some of Brandon Ingram's numbers now that they've gone to the point uh, Zion approach. And I looked at some of his off-ball numbers, uh, specifically, you know, uh, play types like uh, post-ups and cuts and uh, DHOs and spot-ups. And he was below 10% frequency play frequency for each of those things and so i'm wondering can ingram and zion play together in a way that doesn't just devolve into a sort of your turn my turn um scenario yeah it's it's, you would like to see ingram be a quicker decision maker and yeah there is you know the way zion plays sometimes it wouldn't might not be the end of the world for it to be someone else's turn because when he attacks he's got to get all the way to the room that's he, he can't just like take a couple of dribbles and go into a step back and conserve his energy a little bit every single time he attacks it's taken a lot of energy to really go through guys do those jump stops those violent spin moves those in and out dribbles and so he can use a rest on occasion also Brandon Ingram is going to need to control the offense when Zion is out of the game. Um, you know, you would like to see Ingram do a little bit more off ball. I mean, to, to give some of the stats that he has 31% of the time, pick and roll ball handler, 19% spot up is his second one. Uh, then transition isolation. Obviously that's self-created post up. He does very, very little, uh, only 2% of the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're not like a great movement offense in the half court. He's not moving off the ball much like you they, he's scored uh, 27 possessions off cuts where basically he's being set up on anything at the basket all season. So they haven't been an amazing movement offense. Uh, they don't really do a lot of like the high post handoff stuff that well, maybe that's something they should, could get into more. But I, I think the issues in terms of fit 
to me are more on the defensive end between Zion and Ingram than on the offensive end. I think they are, are a pretty decent combo on the offensive end. Well, yeah, it, it was interesting. I mean, Jared brought up the, you know, the, that, that is maybe the, the synergy of Zion and Brandon Ingram is a significant problem for them, but their defense is going to have to get significantly better if they're going to do that. And the Hawks are an interesting analog because remember the Hawks had acquired Clint Capella, but he hadn't really played for them. And the problem for the Pelicans is maybe they thought they were getting that with Stephen Adams so far preliminarily they have not um and there will be challenges you know for new orleans i mean you look at it one way of doing this is they have a 116 offensive rating when zion has been on the floor since february 1st which is a rough proxy for the post zion era 116 is quite good you know that's or roughly the, the you know point, the point zion era you mean the point Zion area, yeah. And so I, I think that you just, you know, if you need to get the defense up, so that the, the Hawks analogy is apt. I don't know if David Griffin's going to be feeling the same pressure. Personally, selfishly, I hope that he isn't, just because I think that building a good team takes some time was one of the mistakes. Not that this is the same group in any way, shape, or form. Some of the mistakes that happened with Anthony Davis was we have this really good young player. And I actually think Zion's timeline is shorter and earlier than Anthony Davis for a variety of reasons. But rushing it generally makes it worse. And because you have you, you put more pressure on very specific decisions, and we'll just kind of have to see how that works out. Uh, we should definitely move to a lightning round because we start a little late, so we'll run a little late, but Nate and I are going to watch games. So we'll start it with Zach here, but we'll try to go as quickly as we can and see how many of these questions we can get through. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, really quick, had a conversation today about the Bucks and the Nets matchup over the weekend and moving forward, how um, predictive what we saw over the weekend and maybe tonight could be. Um, can the Nets build a wall against Giannis? I personally think they can't. And um, does it matter if they can or not? So Giannis in that game on Sunday only took 10 shots at the rim. He was 8 out of 10. And they forced him into taking a ton of jump shots. He took 26 shots outside of the restricted area. That's a pretty decent ratio. Part of that was he was making them. And so he was naturally going to take more of them. Uh, I, I think... Ultimately, the Bucks are going to score very well against the Nets. I felt a little bit better, actually, about the Nets against the Bucs. Not, I probably would have picked the Nets to win that series anyway, if fully healthy. But I thought their defense actually looked a little bit better than I expected in that game because they weren't giving up a ton of open threes to spot up shooters. And Giannis probably shot better on jump shots than it could be expected. Maybe their defense will be a little bit worse when Harden's out there. That's not... Uh, wouldn't be totally unexpected. But I think if they can play defense at the same level that they did in that game on Sunday, I think they'll be in pretty good shape because I think they're going to score well enough to win games in that series. So um, it was actually slightly better than I expected. I mean, I don't expect them to stop Giannis. I think when Giannis puts his head down, it's going to be pretty difficult. They don't have anyone to really guard him one-on-one. They'll have to change up the strategy some to where they're going to send some more opportune double teams at some point. But it was it was a little better than I expected, to, to be honest, uh, on Sunday. But that's only one game and Harden didn't play. So only so much you can take away. We'll get another data point tonight. I guess I sort of think that the Bucks, um have to, like Holiday has to sh- put the clamps on one of Kyrie or Harden pretty well. And then Holiday and Middleton have to average collectively plus 45 points and Giannis has to dominate in order for the Bucks to beat the Nets. Does that sound about like a pathway of how they could beat them in, the, in, a, in a series of Harden to Celtic? Yeah, to some degree. I think they just need to they need to beat them on the boards. 
They need to play harder than them, which I think they have more guys who play harder. Uh, and I think the fast break is going to be enormous for the Bucks. They got to really run it down their throats. But obviously, they're taking the ball out of the net every time. That's a little bit more difficult, potentially. But yeah, I think just using their athleticism and intensity advantage, that is their biggest advantage. And I didn't see them use that that much in that, that Sunday game. But again, it's a regular season game when everyone is, is exhausted. Here. Are you, I, one more thing, and then I'll hop off. I know you're trying to go fast. The Nets transition offense is really, really scary. Um, so you think that it has to be fast pace and be fast break or do you think that the bucks can do it by sort of doing a pace sort of thing and the conversation actually had talked about the suns and the spurs and like the mid-2000s and the spurs making it so that the suns couldn't get in transition or do transition threes as much and the nets have a lot of that too do you think that the bucks can both get in the fast break and dictate pace of not having those types of quick threes coming through for the nets and then I'll hop off. Sorry about that. I just, I just think it's a really interesting matchup. Oh, me too. I can't wait. It's going to be one of the more interesting matchups we've seen in a long time for us. Yeah, and, um, and Philly's yeah. super soft schedule means that there's a, a better chance that we're actually going to see it because, I mean, I, th- I think that's going to be the 2-3. Things can can change. Uh, thank you to Zach. Uh, we'll move on to, I'm going to say it, Ido. Ido, you're on the air. Yeah, that's good. Most people say Ido, so I'm glad uh, you, you got it. Was the right? Um, I was just wondering for the Celtics, um, who is a tougher matchup? Assuming they can't get up to the four or five, do you think the, the aforementioned Bucks or Nets are tougher for them? Thanks. Uh, I mean, I think they haven't really played that well against the Nets this year, and the Bucks though they also don't have a good matchup for Giannis. They're both pretty miserable matchups, frankly, for for Boston. I think actually, I, I would. They probably won't get down to eight, but I'd probably rather play Philly than any of those teams uh, to me. But I guess I would say the Bucks by hair just because the Nets are better. And I think that the Celtics have at least, uh, other than uh, that 2019 uh, series, have usually played the Bucks pretty well. Yeah, I would say full strength. I would rather I would rather face the Bucks than the Nets for them. But given what we know right now, I would rather face the Nets because we don't know if they're going to be healthy. It's, exactly. it's an open yeah. question yeah. right the, now. The health is really the, the, the key thing, the health. But yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you. We will move on to Mike. Mike, you were on the air. Hey guys, how you doing? Hey, uh, quick good question. Good, good. Quick question about the uh, the Sixers. Um, I know you guys have discussed recently on the pod a lot about their lack of defensive versatility, <laughs> and I think you know the rest of the starting lineup is, I, I would say, pretty switchable. I'm curious as to your guys' thoughts and if you think it would be a good idea for them to kind of switch it up as we get deeper into the playoffs and the stakes are getting higher to kind of uh, switch to a um, switching defense. Um, I know it's it's uh, increases injury risk for Joel and his uh, physical exertion, but I think it if it's the only path to a championship, I think it might be worth it. Well, so it depends who the competition is. I, I think against Brooklyn, maybe that's their only possibility, but I, I don't think Joel guarding Kyrie or KD or Harden out on the perimeter is, is going to work that well. I think you got to kind of just go for the let's just wall off the rim completely approach and uh, – try to force these guys to take jumpers off the dribble, you know, not help off. But, you know, usually the Nets will have one relative non-shooter out there, like a Jeff, even like a Jeff Green or something. So if you want to bomb away with the, with Jeff Green, or maybe they got Claxton or DeAndre Jordan out there, uh, but just have Embiid pretty much patrol the paint and then see, you know, if they go into their pick and roll game, that's, that's when maybe it gets difficult and you probably need to change up against guys who are that good offensive players. But I don't think they have a great solution honestly uh, against the Nets defensively except to 
uh, maul them on the other end with Embiid, and then just, you know, if they're going to hit a bunch of mid-rangers, fine, try to just say, hey, if you're Darden, whoever that guy is, you're George Hill or whoever, just try to chase them over the screen, force them inside the arc, and if they're going to hit, pull up two-pointers, then that's what's going to happen. Yeah, awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I just have uh, still have nightmares of Kemba Walker just killing them in the. Uh, oh you know, yeah, yeah, Joel. yeah. So, thanks, guys. Thanks, Mike. Um, Nate and I are going to have to watch games, so we'll do one more question and then we'll we'll jump because we're doing we're doing a gamer night. So, Paul, you are on the air and you have the last question. Hey, so the Ringer came out with their rankings for the best play, t- top twenty five players in the league, and they had Nikola Jokic one. I thought that was a little ridiculous given his defensive limitations, and I'm just curious what you all think. I'm not going to say it's ridiculous. Uh, I mean, he's almost certainly going to be the MVP this year, but yeah, I, I would like to see more of it from from him defensively before I can go there. I definitely wouldn't like the, one of the things that I thought was missing for their analysis. I didn't read the whole thing up, but I did see that. I was curious to see who had they had number one was. I mean, they didn't talk really about Jokic's defensive limitations in the playoffs at all, and I think that was something that just had to be. Uh, you have to at least mention that, and you know, so I would still rather have a healthy LeBron or KD or. I mean, I probably I would rather have Anthony Davis, I think, or Steph. You know, and, I mean, you, you guys know what our rankings were. Probably, I think that was a public pod. So everyone who's bothering to come on this thing is probably has probably heard it. So yeah, I mean, certainly there was a bit of a difference. though, since I had Jokic nine, I think Danny, you had him right in in that same area as well. Yeah. So the challenge with this, and it's part of why Nate and I are so explicit about what our criteria is, is that you need to, to me, it's important to have that. And and it's very possible that the Ringers thing, I haven't gone all the way through it yet, that they, that they had something more specific for their, for the voters than, than what was made public. But the reason you have criteria is important is because then everybody knows you're grading on the same thing. And so then if it's, if you value the playoffs, if you value being available, if you, you know, like depending on, there are lots of different elements in play here. And those, you know, and so you can argue, well, that means you're not saying you're saying this guy's better, but only in specific circumstances. And yeah, that's true. But the, the benefit of it is that when you, when we say this, this is what we're basing it on and this is how we feel. And so if the more, the looser it is, the more open interpretations you get. And so in some of those interpretations, I mean, I, I haven't finished all of my research yet, but I'm guessing Jokic is going to be my most valuable player for the 2020 slash 21 regular season. So by that virtue, you know, he's been the most valuable player this year, but that is a different thing. So that, that's part of why I think Nate and I, and you can have different criteria than we do, obviously. But that's why we're so overt about it and then use that exclusively. Yeah, and I guess the other thing I'll add, too, is I, I think they're, the way they did it was kind of an ensemble cast. And so that can lead to some weirder results. Although some people would say that me having Yogi's number nine is a weird result, too. But I, I think you don't really have, when you have a bunch of different people, you don't necessarily have an overarching set of, of criteria. And maybe it doesn't make as much sense. And who knows? I didn't see, like, what their voting was, right? Like, maybe... All of them voted Jokic number three, but because they had more of a variance on some of these other guys, then Jokic ended up being number one, even though none of them actually thought that he was the best player. You could see something like that happening as well. Uh, so, again, not knowing more, more about their the, the way they did it, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on that. And I mean, the guy's going to be the MVP. I don't think it's insane to consider him the, the best player, but it's not something that I agree with, again, due, due to the reasons that you mentioned, Paul. 
Yeah, I, I appreciate you taking it. And I don't mean to say that it's ridiculous. Obviously, he's the MVP. But the defensive limitations, when you're talking about best player in the league, it, it just amps it up just a little bit. So. No, thanks, Paul. And um, actually, Nate, I'll let you do the outro because you have other stuff to, to mention. <laughs> yeah, well, that's going to do it for today. John and I will, will be on, John Hollinger and I, at our semi-usual time, which is 2 Eastern, 11 Pacific tomorrow. Uh, that'll be on my account, uh, Nate Duncan NBA here. And for Dunktown Prime subscribers, Danny and I are going to do a gamer. You can check that out later today. We'll talk to you all then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.